As we enter into the last half of the book of Daniel, things take a dramatic turn. The book no longer focuses on Daniel and the stories of his service in the courts of Babylon. You know, the stories of the fiery furnace or Daniel in the lion's den are behind us now. And for the last half of the book, Daniel focuses on telling the dreams and visions he received as an old man. And they are all a little bit weird and otherworldly. We got our first dose of this last week in chapter 7. Daniel recounts his vision of the four beasts, a lion with the wings of an eagle, a bear devouring flesh, a leopard with four heads and four wings, and another beast too terrifying to describe. It's, it's all a lot to take in. And as we just heard in the reading, Daniel has another vision in chapter 8 involving more animals, a ram with two horns and a shaggy goat with four horns, and then another little horn More animals, more horns, more mystery, more weirdness. If you are new to faith or you're just exploring faith, I want to be straight up with you. There are some parts of Scripture that are more difficult to understand than others. And I will do my best to try to help you understand this passage because I think it's important that we engage all of Scripture and not just selectively engage Scripture. But I also want to acknowledge that after today, you may just need to go home and read the book of John, and that's perfectly fine. But as we take our time and impress into these parts of Scripture, we're going to see that Daniel is still occupied with answering two questions. How do we live in a foreign land? And how do we fit in here without being swallowed up? And these are the questions we need answered because if you're a follower of Jesus, Scripture says you are in exile wherever you live. You're in exile waiting for your true heavenly home. And so as odd as Daniel's visions may initially appear, they help situate us in the course of history. They help us discern how to live as exiles in this cultural moment. There will be many kingdoms, Daniel says. They will rise, they will fall, they will come and they will go. The only kingdom that will ultimately last, the only kingdom that can bring about true human flourishing, true goodness is the kingdom of God. And one day this kingdom will be established on earth as it is in heaven. And this kingdom will have dominion over every tribe, every tongue, every nation, every person. That is the promise given to Daniel and it is the promise he faithfully delivers to us. And this is what we saw in chapter 7, the big picture. Earthly kingdoms come and go, but the kingdom of God will last forever. But chapter 8 zooms in, and it zooms into a very specific period of history, the clashing of different empires and the suffering they create. As I said, the chapter opens up with two animals, two more animals, a ram and a goat. The ram has two horns, and the goat has many. And as these two animals fight Conveniently, an angel is once again close by to explain what the dream means to Daniel. And the angel is shockingly specific this time around. We're told the two horns of the ram represent the kingdoms of Media and Persia, and the goat represents the empire of Greece. And to top it all off, the angel also tells Daniel that the the vision is ultimately about the end of time. The end of time. Now, if we think that means the end of the world, we'll look at this passage and say, well, Daniel got it wrong, so we shouldn't listen to it. But that's not what is meant by this phrase in the scripture. The the end of time in this particular passage is talking about the end of these empires. This vision is about the end of Media and Persia and Greece. When Daniel had this dream, just to situate us, it was around 542 B.C., 
But what he sees won't actually take place until the period of 350 BC to 164 BC. Or as the angel says to him, it concerns the distant future. And if that's not miraculous enough, there's another miracle. Scholars practically agree on what this is describing. They all unanimously agree that the goat of Daniel's dream accurately describes the kingdom of Alexander the Great. And even more specifically, the description of the little horn throughout the vision accurately describes King Antiochus IV, who violently oppressed Jerusalem around 175 to 164 BC. Across the board, conservative or liberal, when you read the commentaries, they agree on this historical interpretation, but they may not agree on precisely how it came about. As Daniel peers into the future, both the dream and the interpretation, they focus on the little horn, on Antiochus IV, because he is going to wreak havoc on the people of God, and God wants his people to be forewarned. Now, I've belabored the dream and its, inter- its interpretation, its overlapping with history up front, because that's not where we should focus this morning. All of this is given to Daniel to help Daniel in his moment of time. This vision of the future actually should impact how he lives in the here and now, because what he is seeing is suffering. And throughout the course of history, everyone will suffer including the people of God. And the question is, how do we faithfully endure through suffering as we live in exile? How do we suffer well while we wait for God's kingdom to come on earth? And so that's the idea I want to explore this morning. God shows us that suffering will end so we can endure through suffering until the end. So if you have a Bible, open it up. We're going to be in Daniel 8. Uh, This morning, I'm actually using the NIV as a translation because I think it helps clarify a few of the peculiarities of this passage. So if you notice a difference between the screen and your church Bible, that's why. And rather than start at the beginning, because it's prophetic literature, we're just going to start at the end. Verse 27. So Daniel has seen a vision about a ram and a goat along with its interpretation. And we're told in verse 27, I, Daniel, was worn out. I lay exhausted for several days. Then I got up and went about the king's business. I was appalled by the vision. It was beyond understanding. Worn out, exhausted, bedridden, appalled. That is how Daniel reacts to what he has seen. Why? Why did this vision knock the wind out of Daniel? We have to remember Daniel's life story so far. As a youth, he saw Jerusalem's destruction. He was there when the city was overthrown and turned upside down by King Nebuchadnezzar and the armies of Babylon. He watched God's people be violated and murdered. He even saw family and friends killed. And he watched in horror as the temple of God was reduced to rubble and as the sacred objects of the temple were carted off to Babylon as spoils of war. And if this wasn't bad enough, Daniel too was carted off to, Daniel, uh, to Babylon as a spoil of war. And he underwent a three-year process of assimilation. And at the end of it, he began to serve in the very government that overthrew his people. And for most of his life, he lived in Babylon, serving Babylon. And now he's old. 
And he's getting toward the end of his life. And Daniel has a vision. He has a dream. Daniel gets to peer into the distant future and he sees something beautiful. Jerusalem is once again established. He describes it in verse nine as the beautiful land. He sees that God has kept his promise to bring Israel out of exile and back into their land. Daniel sees that the capital city is flourishing. The temple is restored. And once again, sacrifices are being offered to God. But in the same breath, Daniel sees Jerusalem trampled upon by the little horn. And once again, the people of God were unfaithful to God because they were rebelling against God and they abandoned God's ways. And so Daniel writes in verse 12, because of rebellion, the Lord's people and the daily sacrifice were given over to the little horn. Daniel has already seen this in his lifetime. He's already seen the horror of the temple falling, and now he peers into the future, and he sees it happening all over again. And this destruction is going to be at the hands of the little horn, which we now know is Antiochus IV. And verse 12 says he prospered in everything he did, everything he did against the people of God as he threw truth to the ground. The angel Gabriel tells Daniel in verse 24 that the little horn will come and cause astounding destruction. Astounding destruction. And the history books confirm it. If you have a Catholic Bible, there's a a few extra books that aren't in a Protestant Bible. And some of those books are the books of Maccabees. They're very interesting. You should read them. And they describe in detail this period of history where Antiochus uh, rampaged Jerusalem. When his armies first attacked Jerusalem, they butchered young and old, women and children alike. And in the first three days of attack, almost 100,000 people were murdered or displaced. And after this attack, he issued an edict forbidding any sort of worship or sacrifice in the temple. And then he profaned the temple in the most heinous way. He not only went into God's temple, he went into the Holy of Holies the most sacred space Israel could fathom, the place that only the high priest could enter, and at that once a year. Here comes a Greek king. He enters into that space with pigs, animals unclean to Jews, and he sacrifices those pigs on God's altar and splatters the blood everywhere, and then he sets up a temple, an idol to Zeus, above the altar of burnt offering. This is horrifying. Daniel is seeing the most horrifying future. We have to imagine if a foreign power overthrew Canada, went into Parliament Hill, went into the center block, took our charter of rights, of of freedoms, freedoms and, and used it as toilet paper. That's the sort of horror and insult, or more literally, we can imagine four years ago, a shooting on Parliament Hill and the sort of horror that created in us, that is just a small picture into the horror that was committed by Antiochus IV against Israel. And so Daniel, he's been waiting almost his whole life. He's been waiting for God to fulfill this promise to restore Israel, to restore Jerusalem. And while he's waiting, he's been secretly uh, seeking the welfare of Jerusalem or uh, of Babylon. He's been trying to care for Babylon and serve Babylon and pray for Babylon while also praying for Jerusalem and that God would renew all things. And now he sees a future where Jerusalem 
and the temple are restored only to fall again. And the future is not a utopia. It's not an upward progression. Things aren't looking better. In fact, nothing has really changed. Israel is still unfaithful to God. And once again, they're suffering at the hands of beastly kingdoms. Instead of Babylon, now it's Greece. Instead of Nebuchadnezzar or Belshazzar, now it is Antiochus IV. The future is not bright. It's rife with unfaithfulness, overwhelmed with suffering and full of evil. See, it's no wonder Daniel is worn out, exhausted, and appalled from this vision. So how does this vision of the future comfort Daniel or God's people or us for that matter? How does it provide any comfort whatsoever? I love Douglas Adams, The Hitchhiker Guide to the Galaxy. Any fans of that book here? All right, a few nerds with us. This is good. It's a quirky sci-fi story about an ancient alien race, and uh, they, they decide that they want to know the meaning of life. And so they build a supercomputer to tell them what life is all about. And they program the computer to tell them the answer to the life, the universe, and everything. And the computer says, this is going to take 7.5 million years, so come back then. And so they come back, and they receive their answer. Does anyone know the answer? You can shout it out. 42. The meaning of life is 42. What? We look at suffering. We ask, will dictators ever lose their power? Will oppression ever cease? Will atrocities end? Will injustice be stopped? Will illness, pain, grief ever cease to plague humanity? Will suffering ever end? And Daniel's given a number, 2,300. Will suffering ever end? 2,300. How does that help exactly? Look at verses 13 and 14. Then I heard a holy one speaking and another holy one said to him, how long will it take for the vision to be fulfilled? The vision concerning the daily sacrifice, the rebellion that causes desolation, the surrender of the sanctuary and the trampling underfoot of the Lord's people. He said to me, it'll take 2,300 evenings and mornings. Then the sanctuary will be reconsecrated. Now, we have to remember, this is a vision. And everything in the vision has symbolic meaning. So when Daniel sees beasts, it's not about literal beasts, but the beasts give you a picture into the true nature of the kingdoms they're describing. In the same way, when there's numbers, they may have a literal feature, but they're still loaded with symbolic meaning. Now, there's a lot of scholars who can play around with this 23 days and nights, uh, 2300 days and nights, and show you how it overlaps with history. And I can point you to those resources, but there is still a deep symbolic meaning to this number that I think is the main point of 2300. The suffering will be intense, but it will not last forever. Suffering will have its day, but it will also have its end, 2300. It's a long period, but it's also a limited period. And in a sense, there's grace in this number. God does not want Daniel, or us for that matter, to be blindsided by life in this world. The New Testament is clear about this time and time again. You will suffer. You will suffer by merit of being alive in a world that is full of disorder. Sometimes you will suffer because of your own foolishness and unfaithfulness and sin. And other times we will suffer because of our faith and even for our faith. 
You see, faith does not mean that everything in life will go well. You will still experience loss and pain, and it will be terrible at times. And nations will crumble, homes will be destroyed, families will be ripped apart. Faith does not make us exempt. But faith can transform the way we suffer and the way we respond to the suffering around us. 2300. The number is deeply prophetic. The suffering Daniel sees in the vision will have a limit and an end. But after this period of history, suffering and evil, they continue on throughout the world. But one day in the big picture, suffering and evil will have a limit and it will have an end because that is the promise of God's everlasting kingdom. The book of Daniel and the book of Revelation at the end of the Bible are essentially cousins. What Daniel sees in part about the kingdom of God, the apostle John sees more fully in the book of Revelation. And John gives us more of the details about the very nature of God's kingdom and what it will be like. And in Revelation 21, 3 through 5, here's what John says. Look, God's dwelling is now among the people and he'll dwell with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Then he said, write this down for these words are trustworthy and true. Will suffering ever end? The answer in Daniel's vision is not yet, but yes. The answer in Revelation from a big picture perspective is also not yet, but yes. One day God will make all things new and suffering will have no place in God's kingdom when it is finally established on earth and has dominion from sea to sea. So suffering has its time for now, but it will end. But once again, I want to look at Daniel's response to this vision. Verse 27, I, Daniel, was worn out. I lay exhausted for several days. Then I got up and went about the king's business. I was appalled by the vision. It was beyond understanding. Daniel was worn out, exhausted, appalled by the vision because it was beyond understanding. It wasn't that Daniel didn't understand the interpretation. The angel is very clear about what this vision means. Daniel was appalled by the suffering he sees in it. He can't comprehend why God would allow such suffering. And there's limits to what we can know. Daniel says, this was beyond my understanding. We simply will not understand some things on this side of eternity. And some things will defy our comprehension. Daniel saw a future of suffering for God's people and it overwhelmed him. And we might share a similar response when we look at the world around us. Because you never even have to look past a week or even a couple of days to see horrendous suffering throughout the world. And it's very difficult to understand why God allows so much suffering to happen in the world or why he allows evil to have so much leeway. And as we see here in Daniel, the reality of suffering defies our comprehension. We can't comprehend why God allows it. But that evokes a strong emotional reaction. Daniel's appalled. For us, sometimes it's a deep anger that God could let this happen or a, a deep felt sense of despair. 
And we react to these emotions sometimes by resisting God because we don't think God is trustworthy because of how the world is unfolding. Or we deny God's goodness or we deny God's existence altogether. One holiday, uh, my family got together and we partook in our ancient tradition of the Stern clan playing board games. Uh, But I decided one year, let's change it up. No more Scrabble. So I brought a game called Quelf. Has anyone ever played Quelf? Oh, a lot of people in second service. If you're not familiar with Quelf, it is a game of progressive madness. Uh, For example, you might pick up a card that says, for the remainder of the game, every sentence you speak must end with the words, hear me, for I have spoken. And if you forget to say that, there will be consequences. And dares start to get put on the table too. One of the dares is no one likes to do the chicken dance, but you do. So set a timer and do the chicken dance without music until time runs out. And so my parents and my aunt and uncle and Julia and I are having a great time playing this game. Uh, You should know most of my family are not religious. They're not even spiritual. But since becoming a pastor, they love to drop deep theological questions on my lap out of nowhere, even in playing games like Quelf. And so my uncle, out of nowhere, I'm doing the chicken dance, and he says, I have friends. And he paused, and then he said, and their two-year-old daughter died. Why would God allow this? And I tried my best to concoct an answer, but it was of no help whatsoever. And my uncle, he is a pretty even-keeled person. But as we talked more about it, he started to get angry, lively, and angry. And he wasn't angry at me or my my answers and how they were failing him. He was angry at God. He said, if there's a God, this is utterly wrong. How could God let this happen? No good can come from this. And in the moment, I thought to ask him, well, what do you think happened to this two-year-old girl? And he said, she's gone. She's dust. That's it. And immediately, all his emotion evaporated. He became passionless. He just said, she's dust. It's final. And I said, do you see? If there's a God, something wrong took place. And it's worth being angry about. But if there's no God, your passion is suddenly gone, just like her life. And only God makes her death feel like a great injustice instead of just a meaningless tragedy. And so I would sooner take the passion and anger at suffering and wrongs than give myself over to the dispassionate world of atheism. Because only if there's a God, and only if God is good, can there be any hope of this wrong ever being righted. Only if there is a God, is there any hope that her death will not be in vain. But the problem is we can get stuck. We can get stuck in our anger over suffering. We can even get stuck in how suffering defies our understanding. We can get stuck and sometimes suffering starts to render the world meaningless. Or we can get stuck in the pain of our own suffering and the desperate and sincere asking of God, why? Why are you allowing me to suffer? Why are you allowing this to continue? But before we can become unstuck, we must accept something. We cannot comprehend suffering. We cannot comprehend suffering. As Daniel wrote, I was appalled by the vision. It was beyond understanding. Suffering may appall us or even make us angry, and I think that's healthy. 
But sometimes we can get stuck trying to understand suffering. We can get stuck asking the question, why does God allow suffering and evil in this world? And there are great resources that can help you think through that question. There are resources that can answer it philosophically or emotionally or psychologically or pastorally, and I'd be happy to give you a list. For example, Alvin Plantinga is widely recognized as having solved the problem of evil and suffering in his acclaimed book, God, Freedom, and Evil. That's a pretty impressive resume interest. Solved the problem of evil. But at the end of the day, even if you solve the problem of evil, you still have the problem of living in a world where suffering and evil take place. Solving the problem doesn't mean you escape the problem. And at some point then, we need a faith that can endure through suffering. A faith that can endure through our own suffering or the suffering of people we love or the suffering that takes place around the world every minute of every single day. And at some point, even in your suffering, you have to turn toward the suffering of the world again. And although we can't comprehend why God allows suffering, we can still trust God through it. Daniel has suffered He has witnessed suffering and he sees a future of more suffering. He's in the thick of it and he can't understand it, but he doesn't get stuck. Instead, we read, then I got up and went about the king's business. Daniel can't comprehend what he's seen. It makes him bedridden for a few days, but then he gets up and goes about the king's business. He continues to faithfully serve God in his place, and time, and station in life. Daniel may not have all the answers, but it does not stop him from being faithful to the God whom he trusts. We might be worn out. We might be exhausted. We might be appalled by the suffering we see in the world or the suffering we face, but we can still faithfully follow God in this place. You can still tend to following God in your home, in your friendships, in your family, in your workplace, in your neighborhood, in the city, you can still faithfully follow God because faith is never about having all the answers to the world's problems. It is about trusting in God's goodness amidst the world's problems. And as you're faithful in this place, you can be a sign, a beacon of hope. That even if you don't have the answers, God is good and God is faithful. Suffering will have its day, but it will end. At least that's what Daniel shows us. But how do we find that resolve? How do we know God is trustworthy? All throughout Israel's history, we see that suffering has a way of restoring their faithfulness. Suffering has a way of restoring their faithfulness. If you look at the book of Judges, Israel has this pattern. Israel follows God, and then over time, they become like the culture around them, indistinguishable from the culture around them. They stop following God. They abandon his ways, and so God gives them over to the cultures around them, and they start to suffer, and things go from bad to worse until they finally cry out to God, help, and then God helps them and restores them, and they're faithful once again. Then the next generation comes, and they start questioning God, and they don't trust God, and they descend into rebellion, and they get given over to the cultures around them, and then they cry out to God, and God relieves them from their suffering, and they're faithful to God once again, over and over and over in the book of Judges. And it continues 
in the books of Kings. It continues even into Daniel. You have to remember, Daniel is in exile because faith, uh, Israel has been faithless again. Exile is a consequence of abandoning God. And now Daniel peers into the future, and what does he see? Once again, Israel is going to be unfaithful and suffer for it. We see this pattern. Suffering has a way of restoring the people of God's faithfulness, but it doesn't work. It never lasts, does it? Because it doesn't take long before the people are unfaithful again. Time and time again, God's people go astray, just like every single one of us. None of us are exempt. But I believe this pattern in Israel's history shows us God will heal our unfaithfulness through suffering, just not our own. Instead, God sent his son, Jesus Christ, into the world to faithfully suffer for us. And Jesus is the only person who lived completely, entirely, and perfectly faithful to God and his ways, never swerving, never failing, never bending the truth, and he was faithful until his dying breath. And it's through his suffering and death on the cross that our wounds, our unfaithfulness is finally healed. Because there, Jesus suffered in our place for our sins. And because he bore our sins in his body, we will never have to suffer their consequences ever again. And now, it's through his faithfulness, not our own, that we're welcomed into this everlasting kingdom of God. See, God has overcome our faithfulness by offering us the faithfulness of his son. As unfaithful people suffer, the suffering would just go on forever. But as the faithful one suffered for us, it will put an end to suffering once and for all. And it's because of this hope in God's everlasting kingdom that St. Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians. This light momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen, but to things that are unseen. In other words, not yet, but yes. Our suffering and the world's suffering will end. Not yet, but yes, when the kingdom of God is finally established, when Jesus Christ returns in power and declares, behold, I make all things new, and in that moment, suffering will end. And then the angel says to the apostle John, write this down. This is trustworthy and true Jesus Christ is the one who has a power to put suffering to bed. In the meantime, if you're suffering or when you suffer or if you have family that are suffering or if you're appalled by the news, look to the suffering of Christ on the cross. Because it's through his weakness on the cross that we find our greatest strength. And it's through his suffering that this world's suffering will ultimately be put to an end. So you can run to him because you are never alone in your suffering.